Uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 19, the second half of verse 19 through verse 30. So if you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, starting in the middle of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for what you have inspired by the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke, to write and put here for us in, in this section that we now come to in the book of Acts. And Lord, I pray as we see and as we look into the life of Paul and his uh, early ministry, Lord, that we might be encouraged, Lord, that we might be challenged, Lord, that you might help us to see and understand the purpose for which Luke wrote. And I pray today, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, as we come to the pages of Scripture, we always, each and every time, need and desire your wisdom and your help and understanding. So, Lord, we ask that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit to read these pages, to hear and to understand the word of the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, especially those of you who know me well, although you probably don't have to know me all that well, uh, to know that I have uh, particular coffee preferences, we might say. Uh, you might hear some chuckles in the back, uh, and that's because some people might say I don't really like coffee as much as I like creamer, uh, and coffee is the avenue by which I can drink my French vanilla creamer. And it's acceptable, right? Because it's not acceptable to just drink it out of the bottle. I've tried. Um, but when people generally ask me if I like coffee, my answer is yes, I do like coffee. And so when people find this out, there's always those individuals. And we all have this friend, this relative, uh, this church member that we know who is like, coffee is their thing, right? Coffee's my life. They've got the t-shirt, right? You go to their house and you, you think this is either a meth lab or this guy really likes coffee because you see flasks, you see beakers, you see scales, all these things laid out in their, in their kitchen and, and you come to find out that they're what we would call a coffee snob, right? I love these people. I mean no disrespect when I say coffee snob, but they kind of are, right? And if you ever have someone who's this way, Usually, usually, they are more than happy to make you a cup of coffee. If you've got an hour, they will make you a cup of coffee and, are, and would love to hear your reaction, love to hear your opinions because they love coffee. And so I've had it happen to me plenty of times. It happens over and over again where when people find out, oh, Denton loves coffee, probably because I've told them I do, they say, well, I'm going to make you a cup of coffee. I have the, the best recipe or the best bean or the best configuration to make the best cup of coffee you've ever had. And I already know what's going to happen in my head. They're going to be devastated when I ask for creamer. I know what's going to happen. 
It, it hurts these people's soul when they spend uh, 30 minutes slowly grinding up and, and maybe even roasting the beans for you and then, then grinding them up and, and pouring it. And you just got to take like all day to slowly pour over the grounds or do whatever sort of contraption they've, they've got there to brew this coffee. And they set it down in front of me. And, and every time, every time, do you have any creamer I could put in this? Oh, oh man. You would think I would ask uh, for like, I don't know. Uh, I don't even know what. You would think I had just devastated them asking for a little bit of creamer to put in my coffee. And always it's the same. Oh, I think if you just try it, you'll like it. It's really, really, you don't need creamer with this coffee. I hear that all the time. You don't need creamer with this one. Inevitably, okay, I'll give it a shot. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I like creamer in my coffee every time. I'll, I'll take a sip. What do you think? How is, isn't it good? Is it good? It's, do you have any creamer for it? And then it would really be good because frankly this is just who i am i do like coffee but any coffee will do whether it be folgers maxwell house house uh, pilot house brew it doesn't matter if you put enough creamer in it it's good like this is the great thing about creamer here's the problem and, and i've had this interaction over and over and over again and a few embarrassing moments in these hipster coffee shops when these people are just so annoyed with me but the problem is, as much as I might try on the front end to set their expectations, listen, I really like cream or my coffee. If this is like expensive coffee and you don't want to waste it, don't give it to me. It will be wasted on me. I'll drink it, but I'm telling you, I won't like it without creamer. It happens all the time. I'm trying to set their expectations, right? And it's hard sometimes. People insist that their coffee does not need creamer, that even I will like it. The problem many times when I end up hurting people's feelings, when I end up disgusting them, is because they had unrealistic or at least different expectations than I had. Their expectations were that I was like them. And the, the taste of bitter coffee beans, uh, the, the feel of the, of the, the, the acid on your, on your tongue and all these different things that they talk about, that I was going to just jive with that and we were going to thrive off of that. Their expectations were frankly just way off, and it led to a great amount of disappointment. I bring all this up and elaborate on my coffee preferences to say that when it comes to the scriptures and when it comes to the text that we see today, I think one of the things that this text does is it helps us as believers properly set our expectations about the mission of God and the work of God and how it's going to be accomplished. I say this because as we have been introduced here in, these, uh, in this chapter, in, uh, we've been introduced to this guy, Saul, a guy that we know is going to become one of, the, one of the most astronomically important figures in the New Testament, a guy who by almost everyone's standards is the, the greatest apologist, evangelist, theologian who has ever lived, we are now being introduced to here in the pages of Acts, and especially here in Acts chapter 9. And because of what we know to be true of Saul, we might think, because of the way we are, because we are human beings, we might have expectations of, of Paul, this the world's greatest theologian. When he enters the scene, he enters the scene like, like Thor coming in on Mjolnir. He enters the scene and just mows down all objections. He, he uh, mows down all those who would disagree and, and just everyone in his wake is coming to faith in Christ and is being converted. But what we see in the scriptures, as we have here for us, the very first portions of Saul's ministry is something that looks a little bit different than that, doesn't it? Paul doesn't come in a way that, that just, no, there's no opposition. All of his friends, when he were Jews, just follow him into conversion. And it's just a, an explosion where no one can withstand this, the world's greatest theologian, as he will become. We sometimes can view Saul in that way, almost like a Christian superhero. Like no one can stand against Paul. But what the text shows us here is something a little bit different. Our expectations ought to be a little bit adjusted if we have this kind of high and lofty view of Saul the man and what he accomplished. In our text today, we're going to see, and, and, and my hope is, have our expectations properly set 
and adjusted. Now, I want to be clear. My hope is not that our expectations of what the Lord can do are in any way diminished or adjusted, but that our focus on where our expectations are set are set properly. In verses 19 through 20, as we begin our passage here today, we see the very first moments of Saul's ministry. Saul enters into the synagogue here, and in verse 20, we see, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Now, Saul's entering into the synagogue as something that would have been expected. The fact that Saul showed up in the synagogue wouldn't have been a surprise to them. The Jews in Damascus would have been expecting this, in fact. For Saul was not an unknown figure, was he? In fact, word had spread of, of who he was and the work that he had been doing. And it was no secret, Ananias even knew what Saul was heading to Damascus to do, if you remember from last week. It was no secret why Saul was coming to Damascus. He was coming there to persecute Christians, to wipe them out, to weed them out. They had been expecting him. And so his presence here in the synagogues would have been no surprise to these Jews, but his message was absolutely a surprise to these Jews. They expected Saul to come and to come and to bring Christians, to come before the synagogue and the leaders there and to say, I am here and I found these Christians. I'm going to weed them out. I'm ready to do it. What they got instead was a man who came with initially the intent to persecute Christians, now saying the same message that they were saying. A man who was now coming saying, yeah, all those followers of Jesus, you know how they say that Jesus is the son of God, how he is the Messiah? Guess what? He is. They're right. That was what came as a shock to these people in the synagogue. Rather than coming to seek and kill the followers of Jesus, Saul now stood before them as a defender of the very message that they proclaimed. The picture we have here of a newly converted Saul is a beautiful picture of ones whose eyes had been opened and one who was eager to go and proclaim to the world the hope and life found in Jesus Christ. And it's not lost on us, is it, that this ought to be the reaction of all believers. That everyone who has a clear and, and firm understanding of the life and the hope found in Christ that he is the Messiah, that he did come to save sinners. It ought to be our desire, like it is for Saul, immediately to go and proclaim that to the world. It's not lost on us that the beautiful picture of Saul, the one who went to proclaim the message that had so radically changed his life. But the reaction given by those who heard him was not unlike that of Ananias we saw last week, who reminded God, if you remember, Ananias, when he is told, go find this guy Saul of Tarsus, he says, "Uh, Lord, you know who that is, right? He's one who's persecuting Jews and who has come here with the authority of the high priest to take, excuse me, persecute Christians, to come and take and persecute the Christians. Now, thankfully, the Lord sets Ananias straight and says, hey, I have chosen him as my instrument. And so Ananias, as we talked about last week, in in great trust and faithfulness, he obeys and he goes and he accepts Saul, his brother. What we see here is a very similar reaction in verse 22. Verse 22, we read this, excuse me, verse 21. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Very similar reaction and very similar statements to what we read from Ananias. But I think the heart behind these statements is a very different intent. For indeed, the amazement, the shock, is not one typically from these Jews of glorifying God for the change that they've seen in Saul, but rather one of disgust, one of anger, and one of vitriol as indicated by the fact that they then plotted to kill him. Verse 22 tells us the kind of reaction and reception that Saul was receiving from these Jews, these one whom he formerly aligned with and agreed with, indeed gave 
hearty approval of the persecution and indeed even the death of Stephen, they receive him with this way. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And the Jews plotted to kill him. I think what's amazing is the text says that he was proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah that Israel and the world had been waiting for. This should lead us to the question, I think, how is it that Saul was doing this? How is it that Saul was proving that Jesus was the Christ? He was doing it how? It wasn't just through his reason, through his intellect, though as we know of Saul, he was very smart. He was very well-trained and, and well-versed in philosophy and in, and in speaking. But it was not Paul's intellect that led him to be able to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Rather, Saul finally understood all that the prophets, all that the law, all that the history of Israel was pointing to. You see, the law, the prophets, the history of Israel, all of it was understood by Paul now in a way that he had never understood it before. All of the knowledge of the scriptures that was there already in Paul's head, already understood by Paul, for as we know, he was a student of the scriptures. He knew his Old Testament. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an expert in the law. He was an expert in Jewish traditions. The Old Testament was not introduced to him when he became a Christian. He knew it well. In fact, he likely knew it inside and out and had a great amount of it memorized. That was expected of people who became Pharisees. What we see then is that this knowledge that he had of the scriptures was there. But for the first time in his life, Saul understood them in their proper context. He understood them as pointing to Jesus. For indeed, that's what all of the Old Testament does. We can't state it enough, but if you want to understand how to read your Old Testament, how to understand it, I hear it all the time. The Old Testament is difficult. It's complicated. I don't know how to understand it. I don't know how to read it. If you ask Saul, he'll say, read it in light of Christ. Read it as informing us and pointing us to Christ. This is how Christ understood the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, when he was interacting with his disciples, that he taught them everything, beginning with Moses throughout all the Old Testament, everything concerning him. In other words, according to Jesus, and as Saul was now understanding, all of the Old Testament was about him. Paul's understanding of the Old Testament finally came to fruition. He knew it. He had knowledge of it. Indeed, a lot of it was probably in his head. But for the first time in his life, he actually understood it clearly. What an amazing thing that must have been. As Paul was, was recapping, thinking through all these Old Testament passages that he knew, and, and even many that he had probably taught and taught wrongly, he was now seeing them and understanding them in light of the truth, in light of Jesus Christ. Finally, passage like, passages like Isaiah 53, the very thing that, that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip found him, it, it came to a full understanding for Paul. When the prophet writes, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Finally, Saul understood that's talking about Jesus, what he did on the cross. He bore our iniquities. Or Psalm 89, which says of the Messiah, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Or even think all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they fell and, and the Lord was pronouncing curses upon them. He says this in verse 15 as he is speaking a curse to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what we call the proto-evangelion, the, the proto-gospel. This is the first picture that we have in the Bible of the gospel, the promise that the Lord is making 
that though man has fallen, though man has sinned, he is going to send one, the offspring of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. The enmity that was there, the, the curse that had been brought into the world was eventually going to be undone and his people were going to be redeemed by the offspring of the woman. Paul was just now understanding that for the first time. What an amazing thing that must have been for him to take this huge bank of knowledge and information that he had and finally for the first time ever to be able to unlock it, to be able to see and to be able to understand it. It's no wonder Paul was in a state of shock when he first came to faith in Christ as he was realizing all of the the new understanding and all of the things that he now saw clearly and understood that he was blinded to before. Saul would have likely been familiar with each one of these passages, but for the first time he was able to understand them in the correct light. This is how he was able to confound the Jews by proving from their own scripture that Jesus was the Son of God. Oh, that we would know and love our Bibles in this way. Even the Old Testament. There are some in in Christianity today who would say that the Old Testament is unimportant, that we don't necessarily need to study it, for indeed, that was for a different people, that was for the Jews, that was a, a sort of different time and and in the church's history or in the history of redemption, for us, that really means very little. What we need is basically just the New Testament. As we now live under grace, give us the New Testament. The Old Testament is, you know what, it's not all that important. And yet, the Old Testament is the very means by which Paul is proving and establishing and showing the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. The Old Testament, like All of scripture points us to the true gospel found in Jesus Christ. You know, nobody in the Old Testament was ever saved by their works. No one in the Old Testament was ever saved by their obedience to the law. The book of Hebrews tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us how they were saved. It was by their faith, their trust in the promises of God. They might not have known the name of Jesus, but they knew that when the Lord promised that he was going to send this one, the offspring of the woman, the the one that was prophesied in Isaiah 53, who like a lamb before his shearers was silent, they knew that there was coming one who was going to redeem his people. And it was their confidence, their trust, their faith in those promises by which they were saved. Paul, now because of his knowledge of the scriptures, he is now able to use them to prove that Jesus is the Christ. We might be tempted to think, well, Saul had an advantage, right? He was trained as a Pharisee. And yes, that's true. And yes, we might not ever in our lifetime come to the same knowledge of the Old Testament that Saul had. But what are you doing now? in order to come to a place where you, like Saul, can demonstrate to people and show people and proclaim to people that Jesus is the Christ. Your study of the Old Testament has been made a whole lot easier because you now live in light of Christ. You can see and read the Old Testament in light of the new, in light of what Christ has done. We ought to be excited and motivated to study our Old Testaments in this way in light of what we know. In the same way, we we watch movies, and we might watch a movie about the backstory of a character from another movie, another TV show, and enjoy it. And we would never say, well, I don't care a thing about that show because I've already met the character. I don't need to know of his backstory. And yet, we can still hear that and think, man, that's so cool how that happened, how this came about. All the more is that true with the Old Testament. And more so, the Old Testament gives us an opportunity to see God's plan of redemption taking form, the roots beginning to be laid, how God worked and moved through the prophets and through the law in order to prepare the way for the Messiah who is Jesus. Not only that, through the knowledge of our Old Testament, we are able all the more to point other people to Christ, whether that be Jew or otherwise. 
A deeper knowledge of the Old Testament leads us to a deeper appreciation and understanding of the Messiah. Let us never forsake the study of our Old Testament, but let us see from Saul that indeed it is of great value and great worth to our evangelism, to our apologetics, I think even to our confidence in our faith. It will do a, a whole heap to boost your faith and your confidence in God when you look and see this, this deep thread of faithfulness and steadfast love that the Lord exhibits from the beginning of the book all the way through to the New Testament. It never ends. The Lord's faithfulness, his love is everlasting. And it's demonstrated all throughout the Old Testament. You can't read and see how God is faithful to his people and not think, man, God is faithful. Even when we are not. Even when people turn their back. Even when people grumble and complain and indeed turn to other things. God is faithful to his people. For us who call ourselves the children of God, that is of great hope and encouragement to us. Because we know our hearts. We know what we're prone to do. Prone to wander, as the hymn says. Prone to turn to other things. Prone to find satisfaction in other things. And even in the midst of that, when we do those things, we know that our God is a faithful and good God and father of his children so that he might chastise us, and indeed he will chastise those who are his. But even as we struggle, even as we fail, even as we stumble, the love of the Lord never fails and never ends for his children. And the Old Testament demonstrates that demonstrates it to a great degree. So church family, as a sort of aside, don't give up on the study of your Old Testament, but study it and know it and be encouraged by it. Let your faith be strengthened by the Old Testament. And like Saul, be able to use it then to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. We move on then to verses 23 through 25, where we read of this plot to kill him. In verse 24, Luke says, But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Paul is speaking very boldly and proclaiming Christ's name. And yet we see what might consider to be us to be unexpected returns. We might expect that Saul, this one who we know is, is the, the greatest theologian that's ever lived, when he enters the scene, as I said earlier, it is not like he just comes and all opposition is demolished. No one can stand in his wake. Everyone has no choice but to repent and turn to Christ. That's not at all what happens. Rather, what we see is that as Saul begins his ministry, he is met immediately with opposition, immediately with threats of death and attempts on his life. And this likely didn't come as any surprise to Saul, for indeed, the Lord said, I'm going to show him, I'm going to let him see all that he must suffer for my name. The world's greatest evangelist started his ministry, and rather than being met with an overwhelming flood of repentant, transformed people, he's being hoisted down the side of a wall in a basket, like a basket of laundry or a piece of fruit or trash. Not exactly how you might expect this great apostle's first evangelistic endeavor to go. Now, there were returns. Even though there was much opposition, there were attempts on his life, we know that where the gospel is preached, it never returns void, does it? There is always good that is done when the Lord's name is proclaimed, when Christ is proclaimed as the Messiah. And yet, even here we see Sometimes it might not be exactly like we might expect. This is why the title of our sermon suggests that we need to correctly set our expectations. Saul was under no delusion that he was going to experience all, all smooth sailing as he served Christ. No, the Lord had already told him on the upfront, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. The Lord showed him that. Saul was not the victim of some kind of great bait and switch by the Lord. Where the Lord was like, hey, come to me 
and, and everything's going to be great. You're going to experience nothing but joy and happiness and, and friendship, and everyone's going to like you everywhere you go. Paul was under no delusion of that. That would have been rather wicked, wouldn't it? The Lord to do something like that to him. And yet we see that happening in our day and age today, don't we? A sort of bait and switch about the gospel, about Jesus, about what it means to come to faith in Christ. We see messages proclaimed that, that if you come to faith in Christ, he will give you all that your hearts desire. You will be healthy and prosperous. I mean, the Lord says in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. And we hear these messages that proclaim a false understanding, a false teaching that coming to faith in Christ means your life just got a whole lot easier, a whole lot better, more money, more health, better success at work, better success in school, all of these things. And what are these things? They're lies. They're lies, and they are leaving devastation in their wake. People who come to faith in Christ thinking, I've accepted Jesus, I'm a Christian now, things are supposed to be easier for me. My life is supposed to be better now because of Christ. And by better, typically we mean easier, more prosperous, better TV on the wall, right? That's not at all what the gospel says. The gospel does say that you are far, far better off when you trust in Christ for salvation. But by no means does the gospel declare or proclaim that Christians have it easy. Quite the opposite. The gospel declares that to come to faith in Christ, Christ means you forsake all. It means that you are likely to take on reproach and suffering as all who call upon the name of Jesus will do. And so Saul was under no sort of delusion that this was unfair or, or unexpected. He knew full well that this is what was in store for him. Because Saul, unlike us sometimes, had his expectations properly set. Let us be wary never to set expectations of, for unbelievers, for those who we would seek to evangelize to, or even those who have come to faith in Christ that are unrealistic. Let me say this, and we can lose this sometimes. Even as I preach this sermon, I think there's a concern that this could be lost. Coming to faith in Christ means coming to fullness of joy. I think that's absolutely true. I think that for the Christian, fullness of joy is found in Christ Jesus. Whatever satisfaction, whatever pleasure, whatever happiness, whatever quote-unquote joy might be found in the world, all of it pales in comparison to the joy that's found in Christ Jesus. Even now, even on this earth, joy is found in Jesus. But that does not mean that ease or pleasure or happiness that is temporary and found in stuff comes from Christ. You see, the Lord cares about our joy. He cares about our contentment. He cares about our satisfaction. What he doesn't care as much about is how much money we have. What he doesn't care as much about is how many cars we have. You might have wealth. You might have cars. You might have all these things that I'm describing. And praise God for that. But all of those things, none of those things, bring joy or satisfaction. They bring a certain amount of pleasure. And in Christ, when we recognize that they are a common grace from God, they can bring even more pleasure. But ultimate joy is found only in Christ Jesus. And that was the bet that Paul was making. That was the, the thing that he had set his life firmly upon, not on whether or not the world around him accepted him, but whether or not he was found in Christ. So we see then in verses 26 through 30, that after all of this and being lowered down the wall in this basket after being saved from this death threat, Paul now in the book of Acts finds himself in Jerusalem coming to the disciples. Now, we might be, might be tempted to think, or as we just read the book of Acts, uh, we think that this seems like it just happens one right after the other. In reality, there's actually about three years that transpires between, between Paul's conversion and when Paul comes to Jerusalem. We learn this from 
from the book of Galatians where Paul recounts his story, where he recounts what it, how it is that he came to faith in Christ and then what he did afterwards as he, as he seeks to demonstrate that his authority to preach the gospel comes directly from Christ, not from the apostles or from any earthly body. So three years have transpired from the time he comes to faith in Christ to the time that he now comes in verse 26 to Jerusalem. But we see here that even after three years, things get kind of even worse for Saul. As he came to the disciples at Jerusalem, what was he met with? Now, thankfully, the Lord sent Ananias to be the first one to come to Saul, right? The one who came to him, laid his hands on him, and called him brother, and embraced him as a brother in Christ. Because of this was Saul's first interaction with fellow believers, it would have been very very discouraging. For what is he met with? He's met with fear and disbelief. In verse 26, here's what we read. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. We can understand why they would feel this way, can't we? Saul, the one who was ravaging the church, is now, we're supposed to just believe that he's just miraculously changed and as a believer now and just accept him as though nothing happened and there's no hard feelings? <laughs> I don't think so. How do we know this guy's even a Christian? What if this is all an attempt to infiltrate the church and root us out? We can understand why they would think those things. One thing's for sure, that would have made for an awfully awkward business meeting, wouldn't it? We've had a lot of business meetings where we've put forward people to be considered for membership and to be voted on. Never ever have we had anything like this where the disciples, the church were to say, heck no, this guy's out of here. We know what he did. We know how he has lived. I don't care what he's done for the last three years. No, thank you. Bye-bye. And yet that's exactly what Saul is met with. Praise God for the wisdom of this one named Barnabas. Verse 27, we are introduced to this guy, Barnabas, who's known as Barnabas the Encourager. Here is a guy with righteous and godly expectations. He knew full well that God was able and willing to save even the worst and most unlikely of sinners. And he now stood in defense of his brother, Saul. This, his brother in Christ, the text says that Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. The idea of taking him carries with it in the Greek the idea that he, he bore with him, he, he went with him, he spent time with Saul, he learned of Saul's conversion, he, he heard of Saul's ministry and all that he had been through and all that he had done and the, the way he was preaching boldly in the name of Christ. And Barnabas, who as I said had proper expectations, knew full well that this guy is by no means out of the reach of my God and my Savior. Redemption has come to this guy. The worst of sinners by their expectation, by their reckoning, came even to Saul. He knew full well that God was willing to save even the worst of sinners. And so he comes and he now stands in defense of his brother Saul. We see here that after he is brought before the apostles and we, we learn from other places where Paul recounts this that it's, it's probably not the, the full amount of apostles. It's probably just two apostles, Peter and James, that he comes and he meets with. And Barnabas declares to them, he, he speaks with them of how, how Paul speaks, has spoken boldly, how he's preached the name of Jesus in Damascus. And then we see Saul continuing here in Jerusalem to do this work, to preach in the name of Christ boldly. And then in verse 29, we're told by Luke that he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. The fact that Saul is disputing here with the Hellenists is a little bit more significant than you might at first think. For indeed, it was the Hellenists who Stephen just a few chapters earlier, was disputing against, who he was preaching against, who he was arguing with. 
He was the same category of Jews that Stephen was facing and ultimately was killed by that Saul is now preaching against as well and disputing with. This is amazing to me because what this means is that Stephen, the one whom, if you remember, Saul was there for his stoning, he was there and oversaw and approved of his execution, gave hearty approval of it. Indeed, they laid their coats down at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. And though he once gave hearty approval of the execution of Stephen, Saul was now continuing the work that Stephen was doing. Even to the very same people. The very people that Saul himself was one of. He was one of this group that he now stood facing down and opposing with the scriptures. And just like they had no other recourse with Stephen but to kill him, because they couldn't dispute what he was saying, Stephen, like Saul, was taking the Old Testament scriptures and preaching Christ from them, from their very scriptures. So Saul now was continuing this work. In the same way they had no other recourse with Stephen, they had no recourse left as they lost their patience and got angry with Saul over the gospel. And indeed they, just like before, planned to kill him. But when the brothers learned this, the text says, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so this passage that Saul was sent off to Tarsus, this event that we just saw transpire, this event that we just saw unfold, gives us the conclusion of Luke's introduction to Saul. And really what we are left with is a pretty underwhelming introduction to the ministry of one of the best and greatest preachers and theologians that the world has ever known. Nothing is mentioned in these texts of the people who came to faith in Christ under Saul's preaching. Nothing is mentioned here of the, the waves of redemption that were, that were accomplished at the hands of Saul, like we might expect of the world's greatest theologian and preacher. It's to an extent somewhat over, or excuse me, underwhelming. It's not underwhelming because the Lord is not at work. It's underwhelming because of what we as human beings might tend to think of other human beings that the Lord chooses to use. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. My goal in this sermon is not in any way to lower your expectation of what God can and will do in the accomplishment of his mission. My goal is to reorient our expectations away from human ability or status and onto the work of the Holy Spirit. For indeed, as though, though very little is said of, of what is happening in the church in this time, of how the church is growing, of, of whether or not people are coming to faith in Christ, if we go on and read the very next verse, what do we see in verse 31? By the way, we're done with Saul now. That's the last we hear of him for a few chapters. And yet verse 31 says, after we're done with Saul, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. My hope today is to properly orient our expectations, not on human understandings, and human expectations. Because from a human perspective, we would think, well, you know, Saul is like a prime candidate for the Lord to save, right? Because he's a Pharisee, he knows the law really well, he already has that knowledge, he's a good public speaker, he has all of these, these qualities that we might think, well, the Lord would really use Saul if he could just save him. And what are we doing in that? We are taking human perspectives, human expectations on what success will come from and how it will be accomplished, and we are setting our expectations by that. And we do that sometimes, don't we? I remember back uh, whenever I was an intern, I heard someone at the church I was at say one time, they were talking about Bruno Mars. This was back when Bruno Mars was just like real big. He was kind of, he had a few hits and his name was getting out there, and, and he said, man, that dude can really sing. Could you imagine what the Lord could do if Bruno Mars were a Christian? And I kind of thought, I mean, Bruno Mars, good, right? He's impressive. He's got a good voice. But the Lord doesn't need Bruno Mars 
to accomplish anything. And if we look at the example of Saul, what we really understand is that what's most likely to happen is not that someone like Bruno Mars is going to come to faith in Christ and then all of his followers are just going to be converted. All of his cohort, all of his friends, all of his influence is going to immediately result in just all of these people coming to faith in Christ. If the Lord so chose to do that, he could. But what's more likely to happen is that what Bruno Mars, if he were to come to faith in Christ, were to encounter is something like what Paul has encountered. Hatred, rejection, disdain by those who were once formerly his friends and his colleagues. And this ought to, I think, give us a, a healthy perspective. It ought to set our expectations in a, in a healthy way. Here's the thing. If Paul never came to faith in Christ, if Paul had never been converted on the Damascus Road, this is a hypothetical, right? It's all hypothetical. But if he had never come to faith in Christ, the gospel still would have gone forth. The church still would have grown because not once has gospel expansion or the mission of God rested upon what men can do. It has always and always will rest upon what God can do. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we, we established at the beginning of this sermon series that really when we talk about Acts, what is oftentimes in our Bibles and, and in various commentaries, this book is described as the Acts of the Apostles. But I think a better way to describe this book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For indeed, the Holy Spirit is the one who was working. The Holy Spirit is the one who is bringing people into faith in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit by which the church is being expanded. God is using the apostles. God is using evangelists. God is using people to accomplish his mission. But not a single one of them is essential or necessary for the Lord's mission to be accomplished. And this gives us a, a healthy understanding in a couple different ways. For one thing, it keeps us as human beings from getting too big for our britches. We sometimes think, right, that as human beings, certain people are just man. They can do a lot for the Lord. Sometimes we might apply that to ourselves. Thinking, man, what, what would be lacking in this church if I weren't here? <laughs> it's a good thing I'm here. I do a lot of work. A lot of people are being taught the scriptures by me. We can get, in a sense, too big for our britches. We can become filled with Pride and vanity thinking that somehow we have something that the Lord needs. And let me tell you, church family, I love every single one of you. And I want every single one of you to serve and to be here as a part of the church. But not a single one of you, not a single one of us elders or deacons, none of us is essential to the work and mission of God. His work is going to be accomplished whether we choose to take part or not. It is to our benefit if we do. If we obey and if we follow him and allow ourselves to be used by him the same way Saul did. But none of us is necessary to the Lord and to his mission. So it keeps us from getting overcome with pride. But it also, on the flip side, it keeps us from discounting our own ability to be used by God in the fulfillment of his mission. I love, we talked about it last week, looking at, at Ananias. This guy who is not even mentioned again except for one time when Paul recounts his conversion throughout all of the scriptures. And yet it was this guy and his faithfulness who, who refused to behave the way that these disciples did here in Jerusalem, who had every reason, even more than them, because it had been immediate that Paul had just came to faith in Christ. He had every reason to reject Saul and refuse to obey the Lord, and yet because of his trust in the Lord, because of his confidence in his Savior, he chose to go to this one who was literally on his way to kill him, to root out God's people. And he went to him and he embraced him as a brother. Not a single person in God's choose, in God's church, is unable to be used by the gospel. Whatever abilities you think you may or may not have, wherever you think you might be lacking, Whatever talents you think you don't have, it doesn't matter. When the Lord chooses to do something, he can choose to do it in whoever he wills. And so 
Believer, be encouraged. Whatever you think you are lacking, the Holy Spirit is ready and able to supply in order for God to use you to accomplish his will and his purposes. We know we might not all end up preaching to thousands. We might not end up seeing hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ because of our ministry. But each and every one of us, if, if we are willing, could be used by God to fulfill his purposes. Whatever gift you have to offer, simply bring that to the Lord and offer it to him, and he will use it. He will use it. What are your expectations for how the Lord is going to work, for how the Lord is going to accomplish his mission in this world? Are your expectations that the Lord is going to do it by, by means of, of saving certain people in the government? We can just get certain Christian people in certain positions that the Lord's mission can be accomplished? Is it that certain denominational leaders are going to get into the right positions or, or be given the right platform and then the Lord's mission is going to be accomplished? Church family, I'm pleased and happy to tell you that none of those things are the basis for our hope and our expectations and whether or not the Lord is going to accomplish his mission. Our expectation is that the Holy Spirit, however he sees fit, is going to bring about the end of the mission of God. And it is our joy, it is our privilege to take part in that, to engage in that. As we fellowship together with one another, as we proclaim the gospel to the world around us by whatever means we have and whatever talents and abilities we have, the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to use that to bring about his mission. We, church family, get to be a part of the mission of God. What a joy and a privilege that is. What a reason for hope and encouragement it is to know that it's not going to be on the basis of how talented we are or what we have to offer, but the Holy Spirit who dwells within us who is going to make it possible. Be encouraged, church family. Next week, we're going to look at what it looks like. We're going to look a little bit deeper into how it is that the mission of God is accomplished, how it is that the gospel spreads and the kingdom of God is expanded but for now, let me encourage you to take heart and know that in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are God's chosen instruments.